G'day listeners, you're probably thinking, that's not David or Tim's voice, and you'd be right. My name is Lucas Day, and after drinking and chatting to the lads for the episode titled, Creating is a Matter of Passion, Not Time, the time has come for me to release my new single, End of the Day. Head to your favourite music streaming service and search Lucas Day, or go to lucasdaymusic.com for more info. Enjoy the episode. And so many things in the last few weeks, so many authors I've just seen in the media have made the same comment, particularly about the United States, who are normally a few years ahead of us in problems. And if we're lucky, <laughs> we won't catch up with them. Mm. But they said the real problem is a combination of ignorance and complacency. And the worst thing they're complacent about is how ignorant they are. Well, I thought that's brutal, but it's true. Yeah. And I've seen it repeated by a lot of people because it really, it was a wonderful summary. Mm-hmm. So, Populism relies on complacency and ignorance, and the greatest complacency is of our ignorance. Mm-hmm. So everything we're talking about today is diminish your ignorance and don't accept complacency. Good day, listeners. <laughs> Konnichiwa, peeps. That's it. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. It's just us in the studio. I know. A bit of a change. When was it just last us? It's got to be at least 20 episodes ago, I or reckon. Just last us or last just us? <laughs> I'll edit it around. So no, I, so. I'd, I'd leave both in because I'm, I'm not actually sure which one's correct. Will we last just or just last? You know. Or is the moment past? Yeah. <laughs> I failed the task. Oh, okay. Now we're into lyric writing. We do have to address that at some point. I, I, I want to talk about that. But today we're in for a completely different reason. It's because we've had a listener send in a question. Now, audience, I would like you to know that at any point, you, if you so wish to ask us a question, we have an email that you can contact in the show descriptions to allow you to send an audio recording like the one that we have received today from Bill Richardson. And I'll play that now. Uh, hey, Tim and David. I love the podcast. Bill Richardson here. An interesting topic, I think, is the, the science and sanity book, which examines the difference between, among other things, knowing about something and knowing something. Populism kind of exists on that fault line where white people can never know what it means to be black. Men can never know what it means to be women. Civilians can never know what it means to fight in a war. How do we join the dots of that true knowledge, not knowing about something, but actually knowing something to uh, build on our civilised society? That's my thought. It'd be good to have a podcast on that. Take care, guys. Cool. Now, listeners, before we talk about Bill's amazing question, something to add. It's not if you would like to send a question in, we would like you to send a question Mm. in because we come up with ideas that entertain us and that's great. But the whole point is you're the audience. You enjoy listening to us and you encourage other people to listen to us, which means you've got interesting ideas, which we would really like it if you share with us. Mm. So if you're brave, send in as an audio clip like Bill. And if you're a little less comfortable with your voice, just type it in an email or some compromise of the two. You send it in as an audio clip, but ask us if you're not really comfortable and we won't play it. You mm. let us know what you'd like to do, but we would really like it if you send questions in so that we know what kind of things you're really interested in. 
Yeah, that's it. Because, you know, we, we can sit and pontificate on... Pretty much anything, given enough time and coffee. That's exactly right. Enough, enough pink coffee, especially mm, pink um, coffee. <laughs> but you know, uh, it's 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 actually interesting for us, I guess, to get a different perspective and, and a different idea because you know we don't think about everything. So, <laughs> well, we think yeah. about everything for short periods of time, but we don't think about anything in particular for long enough. Yes, I would argue right. that's my problem. <laughs> well, yeah, there are just some things that don't even occur to me yet. So, um, mm, like tandoori pizza. Yeah, yeah, that had never popped up in a menu. I never would have thought about it. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to use tandoori pizza as a segue into Bill's question. Okay. Which I bet Bill didn't expect. I certainly didn't expect it 11 seconds ago. (laughs) It strikes me that Bill's asking at least a couple of very big and very interesting questions. First of all, how do we know what we know? And what can we know? Mm. So we're into what philosophers would call epistemology. How do we know what we know? Mm-hmm. We're also potentially into ontology, you know, the nature of being. How do we know what things are like if they exist? You know, do they exist? Don't they exist? If they do exist, what can we know about them? So in philosophy, I think epistemology and ontology can be seen as clearer disciplines. But I always struggle to stay within the strict philosophical debate. So unless you really want to stay with the words of epistemology and ontology, I'd kind of happily ditch the big complex terms for most of today's discussion and just talk about how do we know. And then the other part of Bill's question is how do we employ how we know and what we can know Mm. to build a better society. Mm. So that's what I'm saying. It's tandoori pizza. Mm Mm-hmm. Tandoori good, pizza good. Two things together, getting a bit complicated. Maybe amazing if both halves are great, but could just be a, a schmozzle. Sure, I guess but if, if this ends up being a gateway drug <laughs> for listeners to get into philosophy, into these discussions, because there's literature that goes back thousands oh, of years Oh, the literature is huge. I guess one way I would describe ontology, just for people who want to get into it, because it's a word that, we, we don't use often in our normal everyday lives and therefore people, people may not know what it means. And I guess my, my, my easiest explanation or the one that stuck with me is the what it is likeness. As Bill said, actually, to be something or, or to experience yeah, What's it like? Something. How do you help someone to understand it? Yeah. Now, listeners, keep in mind, too, if you find this stuff really interesting, we do have friends who are hardcore philosophers. Mm-hmm. So we could always get someone on who knows the epistemology mm. and ontology literature infinitely better than us, and we'll pepper them with questions. Mm. But that strikes me as something we would need some feedback to know that someone wants that kind of deep dive. Mm. Whereas I'm going to go slightly deep dive to start us if there's no more things we want to add at the beginning, in that I think one of the best things I've ever read about the idea of ontology, the idea of being, how can we know, you know what it means to be mm. and how do we decide what things do exist, is a wonderful book by an American philosopher called Dale Jaquette. And it was written in the early 2000s. You know, I read it when I started my PhD on existentialism that I never finished and it was one of the most persuasive things I read in my research. And I can't remember the title of the book, but the essence is, and who knows, maybe even it's the title, is the idea of a combinatorial ontology. Mm. And I like this because I was studying existentialism and I was looking for a way to go, I think this exists, someone beside me thinks it exists, we can agree it exists, that's as good as it really gets. That's as much as 
you know, as much meaning in ontology as we can have. Mm. So Jaquette's ontological model is, say Tim and I are sitting here in the studio today, we have a table covered in a mink blanket. Now it's synthetic, but it's soft. You know, the table is more or less flat. The floor is more or less flat. Mm -hmm. The floor has carpet. Now, if we sit here and start describing this table, this blanket, this floor, if we can agree on a lot of these things, we can say with a degree of certainty that we have a combinatorial ontology that this table is here and sitting on a carpeted floor. Mm. Now, if we get to the colour of the mink blanket, then we have a problem because I can't see the colour Tim can. Mm. But because we've agreed on so many things about the table and the blanket and the floor, I may just choose to trust Tim when he says what the colour is. And I go, I might go, well, okay, Tim, what colour's the blanket? Black. Right. So what things in the world are black? Uh, Tyres, the coffee cup lids, uh, <laughs> my drink bottle. <laughs> right. So the great thing is here automatically we're on the way, even without me having the data myself, mm. to extending the combinatorial ontology. Tires are black. Mm. So if anyone said, hey, David, what colour is the blanket in the studio on the table? I could say the same colour as tires. And they'd go, oh, black. Mm. So I can't confirm it here necessarily with Tim, but he's given me a way to extend the combinatorial ontology with other people. Mm. It's like confirming pattern finding with other people. Yes. Mm. And what I really like about this is it's a great underpinning from an existential point of view. It puts no definite meaning in the world. It puts meaning in control of people. Mm -hmm. um, it works well from an anarchist or communitarian perspective because mm -hmm. it reinforces that you know, the group, no one can just say something is. They have to get an agreement. There has to be consensus. So something incredibly democratic about a combinatorial ontology. Mm -hmm. Now to the point where you wouldn't want to do everything through combinatorial ontology, <laughs> but it empowers people to understand and define their world within the limits of consensus and analysis with other people. And if you're outside the combinatorial ontology, well, maybe you've discovered something new or maybe you've lost the plot. But either way, you either have to make a better case or reassess your case, which is still a valuable thing to know. Mm. So at some level, Bill's question about how can we know things, well, I think it's important that if a group of women sat down together, they could talk about a bundle of things specific to women mm. and come up with a combinatorial ontology for what it is to be a woman. Mm -hmm. If a group of black people got together, and I think this is more problematic because black where? Indigenous Australians, mm. black Americans with a heritage of slavery, black Americans with a heritage of arriving after World War II mm -hmm. and knowing their family ever being slaves, black Brits living in London whose families moved there you know, in the 1940s and rebuilt the UK after World War II, mm. you know, black Ghanaians at university planning to go work for the UN. Mm. What does this really mean? Mm. So suddenly even here what we get is a small group may agree, but if you extend it beyond that, there's going to be a different sense of what it means. It's difficult to homogenise them. Mm. And, yeah, I guess they they would have a completely different combinatorial Precisely. ontology. Yeah. But as long as we list what the primary characteristics of a group is, sure, that we said educated white women in Australia mm -hmm. or black men and women from Ghana going to a top university 
planning to try to go to the UN uh, as bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. If we keep our combinatorial ontologies reasonably well described and we have a sample size, then we might go, gee, that sample's a bit small. Could we extend it? Well, we could. If we had 10 people from that university trying to define what it's like to be black and Ghanaian and wanting to work for the UN, could we ask all the black Ghanaians who work in the UN? Mm-hmm. Could we ask all the people who are finishing high school in Ghana, want to go to university and join the UN? Mm-hmm. Could we get a subset of people who've achieved it, are on the way to achieving it, and think it's a good aspiration? What would that tell us? So what I really like about a combinatorial ontology is you have to keep being open to you have a bit of information that makes sense where you are with who you are mm-hmm. and what you're doing, but it doesn't extend much further than that without the input of someone else who can help you build a better consensus and ontology or make you rethink your ontology, which I like because you can't get an ego over the world. Mm. You can try and understand it, but you can't get an ego about it. It it becomes increasingly difficult as people are, what's the word, stratified? Yeah, stratified environments. Mm. Because, okay, that's a great point. So if we look at really class-riven societies, so if we look at, you know, Historical Britain, mm-hmm. if we look at the caste system in India, how different is experience if you're an aristocrat in the UK versus being a factory worker in the mid-19th century? Mm. How different is it in 1950 to be Brahmin in India or be a Dalit? How different is it in 2020 to be a Brahmin or be a Dalit? Mm. But you can continue to classify people in increasingly varied and specific ways. Mm. And so then all of a sudden does it become what is the combinatorial ontology of let's just I'll try and I'll try and identify myself because it's probably the only person I would be familiar enough with to be able to go Come with the specificity with. Yeah. so white christian in background australian english heritage or or should I say british heritage heritage South Australian even, because that kind of changes your experience between South Australia and, and Sydney, um, university educated, high openness to experience. You could even take it to that point. You can add so many things if you want. So at that point, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we could find plenty of people that would fit in my category, but then what, 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 is, what is the significance or relevance of that, I guess, to, to our democracy? How specific do we want to go? And then if we don't go very specific, how, what's the utility of being broad? Um, well, this is another thing about having spectrums, and you know how much I like putting spectrums in things. <laughs> yeah. The advantage of this to me is if you're going to be specific about you, mm. remember that someone else could be specific about themselves, mm-hmm. which means if you think something is a one-size-fits-all, you're probably lying to yourself. Mm. But... That doesn't mean there isn't a base standard that could be pretty good for everybody. But you need to ask everybody. Yes. And that's not absolutely everybody that takes too long. But you need to go broadly, who's in our society? Okay, yeah. And to me, that sort of is then the leap where I would use a combinatorial ontology to work out what things we can agree on to then start asking Bill's question about what kind of society we want, and I would jump into John Rawls' idea of the veil of ignorance, Mm -hmm. that you should make rules for a society not knowing who you are going to be in that society. So if you're an aristocrat in the 1850s in the UK, you do make the rules, and guess what? They suit you. Great, as long as you don't care about anyone else or that you're not worried what could happen if you lose your status. 
It's a, it's a thought experiment that really exemplifies sympathy, right? In yes. the sense that the way I like to think about sympathy is just because it starts with an S. Like you, you synthesize, I guess, the feelings that you could have if you were in the position of someone else. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful thing with this is Richard Dawkins has made the argument that altruism actually comes from selfishness. Mm. And what I like about Rawls's idea of the veil of ignorance is even the most egotistical dick, if they're faced with this experiment has to stop and go, oh, yeah. if I'm exclusionary and I turn out to be one of the people who is excluded, that's not good. So I like the fact that when I've used it with students at undergrad level, I've used it with senior corporate executive, I've used it with soldiers, I've used it with all sorts of people in training. And it's a wonderful leveller to get them to start to look at things outside of their normal identity comfort zone. This only applies for people who wish that wish to make a better world, I guess, in some sense, mm, doesn't it? But because in a group, if you get one who doesn't, mm. it's amazing how fast the group look at them and go, Ooh, <laughs> control. Yeah. Don't like that. Don't necessarily like the idea of you having power. Mm. And I've always enjoyed watching the few people who actually genuinely have the arrogance to believe the world should fit and suit them. Mm. When the group realise that's how they feel. I have no problem exposing that kind of person in a group. I think it's better for the group to know. (laughs) People like that are just too damn dangerous. Well, yeah. Because not much stops them from (laughs) putting their plan into place. And yet very often they're experts at getting what they want by trying to convince you you want the same thing as them. Yeah. So historically, really, the left and the right have done the same thing. Absolutely. So we can make that fair. We can say that really communism in particular tried to reduce everyone Mm. ideally it was meant to be from each according to their ability to each Mm. according to their need Mm -hmm. sounds fine it's never worked yeah and and in the in the attempts to make communism work you're going to always get those people who say you know it's it wasn't real communism it wasn't real communism and 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 particularly in the 19th century those regimes didn't even identify as communists right like in russia well you know you only get communism beginning really in 1917 Mm-hmm. So everything before, okay, there's some communes after the French Revolution and stuff. The whole point here is they pretended it was for everyone, mm. but without playing the veil of ignorance game. Mm-hmm. And I think if you apply the veil of ignorance to the modern left who claim to be for everyone, you know their answers are okay but not great. Mm-hmm. If you play the veil of ignorance on neoliberalism, it claims we can all be wealthy and trickle-down economics works, but when you do veil of ignorance on it, you go, that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If you do like small L liberalism, slightly progressive, but also you know a little bit conservative, wanting to keep the best of the good, you go, that middle point isn't actually so bad. Mm-hmm. So a little bit too far left or too far right, actually when the veil of ignorance is applied, often doesn't stand up very well. No, that A really thoughtful centre is not perfect. But your birth into the system is less discriminatory mm-hmm. if something like the veil of ignorance has been applied to structuring the society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, there's been some interesting discussions about whether through the veil of ignorance you necessarily have to have democracy or you just have to have meritocracy. And that gets into a whole other interesting thing. And we've talked about meritocracy before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just a whole big can of worms. <laughs> because the whole point is if the veil of ignorance means you're not going to exclude anyone, you have to be meritocratic. 
But to be truly meritocratic, at the end, anyone has to be able to rise to be a leader. So you also probably need to be democratic. So the veil of ignorance kind of leads to, if you just keep elaborating and outward, a need for a meritocratic democratic system. Mm -hmm. Which is why I like it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. People winning on their policy platform, right? Mm. On the merit of that, I guess. And having a democratic system that says, okay, on their merit they got to a position where they can talk to us, but we still get to decide as a group where the consensus is to give that a go. Mm -hmm. Well, that... Again, you know, it's obviously it's really these are really um, kind of nice and and simple thoughts. But if we bring it back around to Bill's question, being that I guess inherent in his questions was a concern about in our modern democracy, which I guess has elements of meritocracy in it that we said it wasn't completely, but it, there's meritocratic mm. bases. It started it? quite meritocratic yes. and democratic after World War Two, Sure. And it's been in terminal decline since the 80s. Uh, absolutely. Well, part of what um, I think Bill's concerns are is that right now we have arguments like uh, no uterus, no opinion in the abortion debate, right? Mm. And, and it's like, no, from a veil of ignorance perspective, mm. We just can't have that. Mm -hmm. Or it's exclusionary in a way that if you do one exclusionary thing, you can have the next exclusionary thing. So it seems to me the problem of the last 30 to 40 years is individual identity has become progressively more disruptive of consensus building. Mm -hmm. And that we've been sold ideas as if they're good for us when no one's played the veil of ignorance game. So we've been sold neoliberalism. Like, you can be rich too. Mm -hmm. Trickle down does work. Well, do veil of ignorance on these things and the policies of neoliberal governments for the last 40 years and you find these things don't work. Sure. Now, feminism was meant to make more equal societies by improving women's position. All it seems to have done in a lot of countries is improve their position a bit but get us to a point where it's become us versus them. The consensus building got lost somewhere in the middle. Well... And, and maybe that has to do with uh, in, in, individuals. However, there is an element to the conversation that is also slightly too group think in some sense, right? Okay, well, let, let's take, say, the Scandinavians sure. who made improving society collective mm -hmm. and kept the consensus thing happening. You know, what every leader of a political party in Finland at the moment is female. Really? Really. That's awesome. Well, maybe in the, maybe in the coalition that rule... The Prime Minister's okay, only like right. mid-30s. That's awesome. So let's sometimes not just go what's going on with our system. Let's look at a system that took a slightly different approach to maintain the idea that if we're going to improve women's position, we have to improve society as a whole, which means transforming society as a whole. Guys have to change at the same rate as women, and the policies have to be about affecting both. Now, the fact that they can have national service for young men and young women alike and they serve on the Russian border in mixed platoons living in mixed barracks mm -hmm. and don't have major problems, that's a big change in society. Mm -hmm. That's a change in society that appears to have made life better for everybody. Definitely. Or at least anything males have lost really was just pointless privilege. And do we really mind anyone losing pointless privilege? I don't really have a problem with that. No. So No, pointless. Yeah, well, it's exactly that. It's pointless. So... Well, self-indulgent privilege, that's probably a better phrase, isn't it? Your privilege uh, Self-indulgent and pointless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got the whole hog. So yeah. this whole thing of this is the point of 
never forgetting that you need to build a combinatorial ontology and then you need to test veil of ignorance on it. Right, because in including the veil of ignorance in your combinatorial ontology, you are not only taking into account your own group identifiers, you are also sympathizing, let's say, with every other kind of group. Let's yep. say, yeah. You have to build into the model to say, who am I, who's my tribe? Mm. How can we define ourselves to other you know, groups within society? Mm-hmm. But at the same point, if I'm going to be part of this meritocratic democracy, mm-hmm. how are we going to conceive of a world in which the thing we build is not exclusionary if I came back as someone else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to constantly balance the two ends of the spectrum. And what we've done is forgotten to balance the ends. We don't do the veil of ignorance regularly. We've allowed individual identity to become too dominant. Because it suits people, it's easy. Let me be me all the time. Well, actually, no. <laughs> know who you are and know how to be a citizen. Because if you don't behave like a citizen, how are we going to have an inclusive model that includes everyone? Now, we need to make sure that we don't take away anything really vital from individual groups, which is why we need each sort of identity group to define who they are and what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually need to ask them. Yeah, and then <laughs> take that information into building our democracy. And you touched on something really important there, you know, sympathy and empathy. Mm. It's far too common in the modern politically correct world to hear people go, I empathise with you. Mm-hmm. I empathise with you means I understand what you're feeling and going through. And I really wish most people who say I empathise would shut up. <laughs> because that is assuming you know what it is to be me. I would much rather hear people say, I sympathise. I can see how big an impact this is having on you. I can see the enormity of you dealing with something. Yeah. And acknowledge the magnitude and then let the person explain what the magnitude means to them. Empathy is an assumption that you can leap into people's head. Sympathy is recognising the magnitude of what's affecting them. Right. The thing that's been coming up in my mind a lot, right, has been how compatible this also is with what we've been talking about recently in absurdism, how Albert Camus might say that there's someone else sitting next to me who's also grimacing at just how painful and absurd this world is. And empathy is a great emotion let's say mm. for that because there's there is commonality in suffering and human mm. existence like at a very deep level i think at the level camus talking about mm. at that really deep level fundamental question about meaning and why to exist and really camus big question why not to kill yourself yeah i believe there is probably room for empathy mm-hmm. but you step back from that extreme and i really wish you would talk about sympathy mm-hmm yeah. Like I can see the magnitude. I can sense the magnitude of this on you. That, to me, you're leaving the room open there for that person to explain to you what they're going through mm. rather than you taking their, their sense of self away. So it's not like I'm anti-identity. I just don't want it to dominate. I want people to want to know about other people's identity. But individual identities to not be that huge mm. that they morph society out of shape. That's funny. It's like almost on a political level. Do you ever get that really annoying thing where you might have a complaint or you've had a hard day at work or whatever, you come home and you explain it or you you know, you know go out and you see a friend or whatever and mm. you explain it and then that friend says, oh, yeah, but, you know, this thing I did once, you know, was equally as hard or yeah. this thing I, you know, this thing that happened to me was, you know, harder You don't harder look for your parallel. Yeah. Listen to me, mm. acknowledge my day and then if it's a caring friend, I'll stop bitching and then ask you how your day was. Mm. Mm. Because that's letting each other be. Yeah. So there's an aspect, you know, in all of this of 
letting each other be, but also being interested in each other to not exclude each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny how there's this continual, it's, it's, it's such a balance between on what aspects do we respect people's individualism and in what aspects do we respect people's group identities? Because that getting that balance right in certain areas is really where I think that we get muddled. Yeah. And we end up so atomized that we forget that there's an overarching consensus to live in a democracy with common mm. language and common rules. We have an awful lot in common rationally, but our emotional experiences and individual life experiences are, are different. But we have to live in a society together and it has to function. Is there something to be said of the kind of biological, let's say, or psychological limits of an emotional experience that, you know, different inputs are really limited by the range of human emotions? I reckon there's probably something to that because really we're all running on the same biochemistry, mm. fundamentally with a brain that works the same way. Now, if we pile a whole series of life experiences on each other, mm-hmm. so a good stoic who has been inured to pain and suffering by practising, a bad day is going to be less bad for them. Mm-hmm. The person who's soft and it's all about them and just goes me, 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 me and takes and has a society that will let them has a bad day and implodes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's extreme. And if you want to get grumpy at me for picking on the individual, feel free. I'm a stoic. Of course, I'm going to pick yeah. on the individual. Mm. If the individual is not working to cope, that that's my default setting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a really important thing that at the end of the day, it's, well, our own lives are a combinatorial ontology. We make our own life mm. by all the little things. Each of the individual physical and emotional responses, we all have very similar systems. Mm. But the things that happen to us, the order they happen in, the people we relate with, the things we choose, they're all slightly different. Mm. So our own set of tiny pieces are always different. Mm. But the range available to us is remarkably similar. Like it's so interesting to me how people can have, and, and, and myself included, right, how I can have very extreme emotional reactions to quote-unquote first world problems that pale in insignificance when mm. we look at some of the kind of suffering that's happening on a global scale. Mm, but in our day, mm. the thing that sets us off is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Probably not in the day, but if it really sets us off, it's the biggest thing probably in the month. Yeah. Maybe even in the year. Yep. And that's really what you have to judge you're responding to. Yeah. I'm responding to the biggest thing that affected me this month. And we need to show, and you know, philosophers talk about in terms of charity, take the most charitable view of someone's yeah. behaviour. And I don't know why I don't like the word. <laughs> Maybe because it stinks of sort of patronage. Oh, I'll be charitable. Yeah, yeah, that's I, true. I don't know why. It just it bugs me. I wish I had a different word for it. But... I would rather just say acknowledge that whatever someone's responding to in an extreme way might be the most extreme thing they've experienced this year. And you may think that thing's just, oh, shrug, whatevs. But you can't diminish the fact of the magnitude of the effect it's having on them. And because of the magnitude of the effect, it's going to take them time to calm down. It's going to take you a lot of effort to engage with them and help them to calm down. It doesn't matter if the thing makes no sense to you. It doesn't matter if the thing to you is small. Mm-hmm. If it's the biggest thing in their year and it just blew up, that's that's their truth mm. temporarily. Mm. But if you're calm and reasonable with them, maybe they can go, well, all right, that was awful, but golly, you know, it really wasn't so bad. And it was really bad because it was, it was bad compared to my normal. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which I mean, which is true of even the people, even your enemies, right? So, for instance, uh, I mean, I'm I'm willing to admit, I guess this, in some respects, it it is a mistake, and I was willing almost to admit it immediately, but still somehow didn't, I didn't engage my sympathizing <laughs> brain. But for instance, I called out a um, corrupt politician in another state who took mental health leave after a bunch of media was calling him out for his corruption and he was probably experiencing some really bad stress from all of the bad press, I guess. So I I was like, you know, this person who was clearly corrupt, I almost didn't want to believe that they were mm. taking mental health leave. And again, we, we, we need to leave skepticism on the table because mm. you can be skeptical sure. of whether the mental health leave is legit, but the whole point is you don't know. No. And we may never know. But equally... For someone who is who is, had been living so well, let's say off um, the fat of the land, yeah, being yeah. being a little bit not a good politician, basically, that probably or this experience that he's going through right now probably is the is worst, worst thing yeah. of the year, absolutely, or maybe so, even a few years. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of whether it's you know, you know justice or comeuppance or whatever, mm. so that's where the, the subtlety and the nuance of things kicks in of going, you know. I cannot know whether this person is legitimately requiring mental health leave, but mm-hmm. it is possible. But we do need to say that the corruption this person engaged in is antithetical to a meritocratic democracy mm. and that we would not want to build a society where someone can behave like that and exclude someone else. Yeah, exactly. So, again, part of the problem is we want bloody short answers. And to, you know, to jump back to, to Bill's question, mm-hmm. populism it was central to how have we got to this point where everything is short and incomplete? And so many things in the last few weeks, so many authors I've just seen in the media have made the same comment, particularly about the United States, who are normally a few years ahead of us in problems. And if we're lucky, we won't catch up with them. Mm. But they said the real problem is a combination of ignorance and complacency, and the worst thing they're complacent about is how ignorant they are. Well. I thought, that's brutal, but it's true. Yeah. And I've seen it repeated by a lot of people because it really, it was a wonderful summary. Mm-hmm. So populism relies on complacency and ignorance, and the greatest complacency is of our ignorance. Mm-hmm. So everything we're talking about today is diminish your ignorance and don't accept complacency. Oh, and they're already in a big step. Like you would imagine that, People who are interested enough to listen to us speak today uh, are not particularly complacent in their or ignorance. Ignorant. So, yeah. again, our audience are the ones who go, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be either. I don't think I'm either. And I actually do a bit of a test on self. Yeah. And yeah. we all need to maintain the test on self. It's so easy to get angry with someone who does something that appears to be corrupt and awful mm. and then plays the poor me card. Mm. Exactly your example. Mm-hmm. Yet we need to remember, okay, they're corrupt which makes us think they're awful, mm-hmm. but also maybe they're having the shittest day of their life. Mm. Now, the, the corruption came first, so we can still have a legitimate problem with the corruption, but maybe we need to call out the corruption in a very calm, clear way and, and not be too, you know, poke the finger, point the finger about the you know, potential mental health issue, which mm. we just can't know. Mm. And yet to be this open to so much diversity can be overwhelming. Again, if we've got so many identities out there, which is why there always has to be the question too of, all right, what broad 
definition of a society and being a member of a society are we going to work with that all citizens can sit within without you know being unnecessarily excluded and you know positively included it's a hell of a thing to build mm. you know, churchill's point you know, democracy is the least worst system yeah yeah and it is it's a pain in the bum it takes tons of work it regularly doesn't work but compared to everything else all right, I still prefer my idea of trying a parliament picked randomly out of citizens where you can only have a maximum of a couple of terms and you don't get career politicians. I still think this would be a better plan for a better democracy. But that's because I want to build in this thing of representing as many people as possible who are then going to be more aware mm. of inclusivity, mm. more aware of avoiding exclusivity, and by the point of random you know, change will keep getting different people in. So you're not trying to change the system in in a way that would exclude complacent and ignorant people. No, I want them to have to step up. Basically, yeah. So what you're what you're doing is is trying to weed out uh, careerists, careerists who don't care about so the which rest is of basically us. corruption and 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 mal mal mm. representation. Is that a is that a word? Maybe misrepresentation. Misrepresentation could be. I'm not real sure. Seems a bit strange. It's just because that word, the other misrepresentation is so loaded. Yeah. Um. But yes, it's what's ill fitting representation basically. Mm. Yeah. So it, it encapsulates what we've just been talking about, which is that combinatorial ontology but especially with the veil of yeah the two things are the edges of the spectrum yeah both constantly got to be in play absolutely and if i was going to add another point in this and turn it into a triangle like we've done so many times (laughs) the other thing i'm going to put in is sam harris's idea of flourishing Mm. from the moral landscape Mm -hmm. because we can now tell physiologically if a human is doing well it's not perfect but it's more than we've ever had before Mm-hmm. And I think being able to define flourishing in physiological terms, which can be measured using scientific method, is a good way to determine what is this base level of citizenship and inclusivity like? What should our base level be that we don't let people fall below? Mm-hmm. And use that as another way to manage you know, our inclusivity and to stop exclusivity. And the fantastic about this whole model is that it serves my intuitions, which is that people should be able to talk about whatever problems, even if they don't have uh, specific vested interests or relatability to it. Even if they are only talking to help the narrowly defined identity be put forward better Mm. so that the questions of inclusivity, veil of ignorance, exclusivity can be addressed more effectively. Mm. So our questions are not about our opinions matter more. Our questions are about can we drive the understanding to a point of a better consensus because we all are in this together. Mm. And part of my thing of wanting a democratic model that is based on random selection of citizens is, okay, you can say no when the random letter arrives in the mail. Do you want to be a politician for five years? You can say no. Mm. But I want ignorant, you know... (laughs) sort of unaware, lazy people Mm. to then sort of fester on that for the next 20 years of their life going, I could have changed something. Mm. I could have contributed. Oh, I didn't. Oh, crap. Well, have Mm. more one shot. That doesn't mean randomly the person maybe can't get the letter again. I've never thought about if you say no the first time, can you stay in the pool for the letter or are you out if you don't accept the first time? Interesting. I'll have to think about that. (laughs) 
Actually, what do I think? No, I think you can say you don't want it now, but you can't opt out entirely. I think there should be a random chance you can get the letter again to be randomly selected to be a a politician so that just in case you wake up, just in case a debate full of genuine citizens with genuine different points of view who are all representing the people they care about, the communities they know, but in doing so are bringing more diversity to the table, means more people might go, well, shit, if I got my shot, I'd want to be there. And if you can sit up in a parliament that's functioning this way and say, how are we going to assess the validity of this policy? Well, we can use the scientific method and assess flourishing. Yep, and possibly involve referendums to keep it de- democratic or... Look, some things are big enough. I think they need to be referenda. I think, what, what, what's the, what, was the, what was the thing we did on gay marriage? What the hell was that called? Was that a well, referendum? It was, was called a plebis. I, I don't plebiscite. know what it was. That was right, because it was non-binding. Yeah, it was non-binding. It was just, let's, let's count it up. And maybe that's all we need sometimes, just yeah. to go, hang on, we need more input. But I would hope by having random people in parliament, you're getting a better quality. Like some things you might say you need a 66% you know, majority. You need two thirds. Mm. I think the point here is Bill's question has led us from epistemology and ontology into veil of ignorance, into building consensus and democracy, into what kind of democracy would bring out the best bits of society. So it links to so many things we've talked about and added a few new things in. It's a lovely kind of revisit of so many bits and pieces. Mm. So I'm not sure if we've answered Bill's question in any way he thought we might have, but it's reminded me that years of thinking and reading that the pieces about how to build a good society really aren't random in my head. They're actually very organised. And mm. maybe there's a gap in there. But yep. I try to stay open to filling the gap if I can. Well, it's also it also highlights the importance of what epistemology and ontology really have in terms of practical application. Now, that can get sidetracked. I'm not, not going to say that, that those disciplines are perfect and you know contribute to the most important things. But, but it's great the literature's there for us to be more informed yeah. when we then try and go, well, how do we build a better society now? That's exactly right. And we need that literature. Like we need Aristotle talking about eudaimonia, talking about flourishing mm. 2,400, 2,500 years ago. Because that's that point. He understood then there's excess and there's not enough of things and you're looking for the golden mean. Now the golden mean's hard work. So if we've got our triangle here of combinatorial ontology, the veil of ignorance, and then flourishing judged through scientific method, mm. well, we've got some pretty good guidelines here, all of which we can dive into in very deep ways. And we can have some experts who spend their lives just better articulating these three things, while a lot of other people get on finding the balance point to make society work. And the fantastic thing is, it sounds a little bit warm and fluffy, but we almost admit that it almost doesn't matter how you come to know about things or whether you can know about things, but it is important to consider that other people may be able to know about things or can know about things which you cannot. Mm. And, and so it is important least, to ask everyone in yeah. some respect. And at the very least, your question might help someone articulate their point better. That's right. And ensure that when we build a meritocratic democratic society, mm. that we've done it in the most inclusive way possible. And so, therefore, no one should be excluded from a conversation on a basis of their group identities. However, group identities are important in identifying the problems which must be... Senses of exclusion or uniqueness that there needs to be room for within inclusivity. And recognising that sometimes 
your question is important, mm. but your answer lacks experience. Mm. So have a question to help better understand an experience you can't experience. Yeah. But except it's your question that's valuable. But the purpose for your question shouldn't be point scoring. It should be how do we build a more inclusive society where the veil of ignorance could be applied more effectively to make sure it wouldn't matter who else you became. Your question would have made popping up in our society a better thing. Well, I think we have addressed Bill's question probably to the best of our ability, I guess, without going off into many different tangents. So yeah, It's sort of cohesive at this point. Yeah. So again, if Bill wants to put another spin on it or another angle, we can do that as a separate thing. But it seems here we've maintained continuity of the pieces. Like if we've got the problem of populism, you know, the problem of ignorance and complacency, mm. our toolkit here is a reasonable one for trying to deal with them if it was applied. How <laughs> oh, it gets applied is a whole other bag of worms. Yep. All right, well, thank you very much, David. I appreciate having coming in, in and having a discussion with you. It's been really good. And thank you very much, Bill. And it's lovely to be in the studio. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.